Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Akaran Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 150 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. Artificial intelligence is disrupting almost every industry and profession, and the legal profession is no exception. In fact, AI is poised to have a profound impact on the practice of law, as lawyers are already using AI to more quickly review and prepare documents, develop legal strategy, and conduct research. Yet there are ethical, practical, and privacy concerns that come with the use of AI in the legal profession. To get a handle on all of those issues, I'm pleased to welcome Richard Finkelman to the show. Richard is a managing director in the Washington, D.C. office of Berkeley Research Group, BRG, which is a global consulting firm that helps leading organizations advance in three key areas, disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and performance improvement and advisory. Richard is a nationally recognized technology expert who brings more than 30 years of experience helping clients manage information and technology and litigation, compliance, and business matters. His experience includes assisting clients with machine learning and artificial intelligence solutions in disputes, compliance, and financial services industries. He has helped multinational companies implement anti-bribery and third-party compliance programs, as well as litigation technology systems. And his litigation experience includes supporting and providing expert witness testimony. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, can you just give us an overview of how AI is currently being used in the field of litigation and the legal profession generally? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, let me start with the probably the most well-known AI that's being used today, and that's in litigation. And more specifically, e-discovery and document review. Uh, we did a survey earlier this year on uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and how it's being used by uh, law firms and corporations. Uh, And we found out that most people are actually already using AI uh, in doc review. Something like 82% of the people we surveyed in the last 12 months had used AI uh, in some e-discovery capacity. And the way we see that is mostly in um, predicting documents and predicting document characteristics. And so we we build machine learning models that will predict uh, the likelihood that a document is privileged or the likelihood that a document has sensitive information. And uh, review teams are then able to review far fewer documents and get to a point where we can give them some confidence score of how many of a certain kind of documents that they have seen and whether or not they need to continue to review documents. And for an example, we've worked on uh, cases where uh, legal review teams have reviewed less than you know, 25,000 documents, and the productions that we made were multiple million documents. So question as to kind of how that works practically. So, you know, a lot of us uh, litigators use like Relativity or like a specific, you know, website or vendor. Do you work with those vendors or do we contract uh, specifically with BRG? How does that work? 
Absolutely. Great question. We work inside the vendor solution. So relativity is a great example. We're a relativity silver partner. We do our machine learning models outside of relativity, but we integrate the workflow and the scoring into just a field in relativity. And we ask people to do their doc reviews there. You know, we, we don't have a separate system to do that. We take advantage of the fact that there's already an infrastructure. Got it. And, and you mentioned the idea that you're able to kind of review a limited amount of documents and you're able to produce a far more greater quantity of documents. How does that work practically um, as a litigator uh, going through kind of the systems and working with BRG? One of the things that we talk to people about is that while AI is certainly new technology, the process of producing documents is the same. And and what I mean by that is that there are clawback agreements and there have been for a long time. And if you don't have one, whether you're using AI or not, um, you're, you're going to get yourself in potential trouble. And the reason for that is obvious. People make mistakes and inadvertently, you know, produce a couple privileged documents and they need to be able to get those back. And the way we work with machine learning is very similar in that we give people the indication of where they are currently. And if they stop review now, what percentage of documents are likely to get out that are either sensitive, privileged, whatever the characteristic is that we're predicting, and the confidence level of how certain we are that the range of that is true. So for example, uh, in a case where we did have, where we helped a review team review like 15,000 documents, we were able to tell them within, you know, 2% error rate that if they stopped, they would produce maybe 300 privileged documents out of, uh, what was the privilege? It was like 12,000 documents. Um, and if the client says, no, we want to get tighter than that, we just keep, you know, we do another round of review and, and do the, make sure that the model is that much more efficient. Got it. And, and I think for a lot of litigators right now, maybe our heads are exploding because, um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're told in, in law school and, and perhaps earlier in our careers, you never want to produce a privileged document. What is the, the calculus, I guess? And I know you're not, uh, you're not a lawyer and, and you're certainly not a legal ethicist, but I wonder kind of where the, the, the line gets drawn between knowing that you're not supposed to you know, produce any privileged documents as opposed to knowing that there's just the vast quantity of documents means that it's going to happen and uh, to be efficient and to be able to do things in a, in a more, I guess, rapid way that's cost efficient. It's just, this is just a, I guess, a cost of doing business that the client is, you know, aware of and, and understands uh, what's happening. So where, where does that line get drawn? I'll say this, that the, there's a burdensomeness argument that you can make as to the cost of what it would take to actually go through. Uh, I'll give you an example. If there's a million documents and you run a search term screen and it hits on, you know, 25% of them, that's 250,000 documents. And the cost to actually have somebody to have, you know, a team of people look at that is very high. And so there, there's a real burdensomeness that you can say, Hey, it's going to cost us X to do this. Instead, why don't we just review, you know, 20,000 documents and use uh, AI technology? I'll go back to the survey that we did and the report that we published. And we actually did some focus group work with law firms and with corporations uh, as we shared the results. And we asked uh, people if they've used the technology, have, it, have they had to claw documents back? 
And then we also asked very granularly to tell us within ranges, was it less than 2%? Was it 2 to 5%? Was it 5 to 10 or over 10? And again, we found that a majority of people had had to claw back documents. And not surprisingly, a majority of that majority was less than 2%. And that's where we would expect people to end up because that's sort of a standard if you can call it a standard, there's still not a ruling from the bench that says, here are the metrics for it. But uh, we found that the majority of people had had to claw documents back and, and that in our focus group research, that wasn't surprising to anybody. As I said earlier, one of the people in the focus group said, hey, we've had clawback agreements before this and we've had to get documents back. This is sort of the same thing. Sure. And that makes sense. In terms of uh, protective orders or clawback agreements, are there any provisions that you typically like to see inserted in these agreements? Or are there, you know, alternatively, some provisions that you wish lawyers would never put into those agreements? Um, <laughs> we'd love to get your feedback on that. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up. One of the one of the key findings that was a surprise to us was that ESI agreements are, are a real burden to both the corporate client and to the law firm. And that's because they're negotiated so early in a case that oftentimes people don't realize that they have left out provisions for using technology like we're talking about, or they have committed to certain things in using this kind of technology, and it's called technology-assisted review, that they have boxed themselves in to protocols that they didn't realize were going to hurt them. And so one of the things we heard was the need for more flexible ESI agreements that allow people to go back 18 months from now and say, hey, we didn't even know ChatGPT was going to be a thing. And now it's a thing. <laughs> and how do we deal with collecting the data and reviewing and producing it? And if people would be more thoughtful about leaving themselves open to being able to do, meet and, do more meet and confers and modify their ESI agreements. The other thing we, we heard was that it might be a mistake to get the ESI agreements filed as stipulated agreements with the court because that there, again, you're committing yourself to stuff well in advance of knowing whether you'll be able to meet those commitments. And when you come back later, you could get sanctioned again because you, you, know, you didn't include something or you boxed yourself in. So interesting. That, that's, one, that's one of the things that we learned that we thought was really interesting. Yeah. And the other thing that I heard you talk about before was the idea of new attachments, which was a new concept for me and how that should or should not be in an ESI agreement. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's a great comment. The uh, We have a client who, who actually told us a story of getting a ESI agreement that was written over a year ago. And in the ESI agreement, it said that you're going to produce new attachments. New attachments, uh, as the name suggests, are different than old atta old attachments being PDFs, Excels, and a document attached to a, an email. A new attachment can be a doc link. A new attachment is not a regular, like, here it is, and we've accounted for it, and here's the metadata. Um, it, it is a link. And in the case of a link, if you agree to produce new attachments, you have to make sure the link still works. And of course, as we know, you know, in, in discovery, some of this stuff goes back years and years. Your time frames, you know, could be four or five years old. An older male, or the, the links and some of the new attachments are going to be dead. 
And if you agree to do that and you don't put in the right qualifications about those kinds of issues, uh, you could find yourself in trouble. So uh, you mentioned chat GPT, and obviously one of the other ways that lawyers have used AI in addition to the e-discovery is chat GPT. So uh, tell us how that's being used in the legal profession and kind of your experience with it. I think chat GPT and other generative AI tools like Google's Bard have such great promise for our industry. The legal industry is a text document industry. That's what we do. We create words and we use words to create documents. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. We use words, we create documents. Well, uh, generative AI is based on large language models that are all text-based. And in theory, the emergence of generative AI for legal should be a terrific, terrific thing. Obviously, you know, in practice, that that is, you got to put some guardrails around that. We all know about the case where a lawyer has filed a, or had filed a, a document that they didn't check the sites that ChatGPT gave them. And, and of course, some of those sites were made up and that's that's a real issue. And one of the things that we talk to people about in trying to teach them about generative AI is, you know, the proper way to use it. For example, if you say, write me an 800 word essay about the topic that we're talking about and ChatGPT only has 600 words of actual content, it will make up the remaining 200 words because you asked it for an 800 word output. So, you know, learn teaching people how to use it is, uh, is probably one of the most important things that we can talk to lawyers about. And how do you deal with privacy and confidentiality concerns? Because uh, if you are using ChatGPT, for example, to write a brief, and perhaps you're putting facts into your prompt that are confidential or privileged, um, how do you stop that from kind of getting maybe into the public domain? But not only that, just kind of going into the, the system that may be accessible by others. That seems like a real concern for lawyers. It, it is as it should be. Generative AI and large language models, how they're trained. Machine learning models take information and they use what's meaningful to the model and they discard the rest. But you can never go back into the model and say, hey, I gave you a bunch of information. I'd like to get it back. Or I'd like to pull out what's private. Once it's once it's out there, it's out there. So it it, it would be a I would caution lawyers against doing the some of the examples that you said because they are creating in, in terms of using the public generative AI tools. They're creating information that the public can find. And I think one of the best examples of that is that there's a story about Samsung software engineers who wanted to check some of the code they had written and generative AI is great at doing that, but they put it into chat GPT. And of course it had intellectual property in it and they've got a big problem and now making that intellectual property public information that they can't get back. So are there private generative AI uh, systems that law firms or that, you know, your clients have used uh, to kind of get around those privacy uh, issues? Uh, another great question. And yes, that is one of the strategies that you can use to more safely use and develop this technology. And in fact, that's what we're doing with some of the initiatives that we're working on is creating private large language models 
that do not uh, share information with any of the public chat GPT like services that are out there. Got it. Because I mean, I see that there could be a, a great benefit to, for example, if there's a you know a database somewhere that maybe a law firm has put together that, for example, in a, in a practice area, in like one of my practice areas is environmental, which is uh, a lot of federal casework. So if you go into Pacer, for example, and you, you search, you know, all of the, you look at all of the motions, for example, written on a certain topic, um, and you put that into your private chat GPT uh, model, uh, that could be a, a, a great way to, to try to, at least as a first draft, first initial try uh, to put together a brief uh, more quickly or to do research more quickly um, than even, you know, going into Lexus, for example. Yeah, that's a good comment. I think that people should think of this as kind of a utility. So think about getting water from public waterworks or digging your own well. And at some point, you're going to have a hybrid where, yes, the information you're talking about in PACER may also be out in public domains already. Anything that's public could be in, you know, public LL large language models. And so what you want to do is create your own private one that protects the information that's specific to you, your case, your client's information. But you also would then want to be able to, without getting too technical, it's called tokens, <laughs> but send out tokens that would allow you to query public GPT, chat GPT-like sites and say, okay, supplement my request here by going out and seeing if there is, or if there is academic research that we might find uh, that's public that we didn't see. And, you know, there, there's a lot that I think lawyers and I guess the general public don't know about the technology. And certainly ChatGPT kind of just scratches the surface in terms of, well, I, I know that I can, you know, ask, you know, use a prompt uh, to get some information. Uh, but I, I wonder, you know, does, does BRG work with uh, law firms and uh, lawyers to um, you know train train us up on on some of those things. I think uh, that that would be really interesting. I mean, presumably through you know client matters, of course. But uh, do you do you guys do any uh, training that that would be helpful to folks? Yes, we are working with clients to help them create safe large language models that are either completely private or hybrids. And I'll give you two examples. One of the examples is we're working with a client to create an ESI technology that will allow them to have outside counsel come to a site to create drafts of ESI agreements. And the way we're building that technology is we've gone out to collect the model court forms. We've gone to PACER and uh, gotten publicly filed stipulated ESI agreements. And we're taking the client's own ESI agreements and building a model that would allow that will allow them to say, I need an ESI agreement, no new attachments, has to have HIPAA, it's in this jurisdiction, and have the, the system start giving output that is, you know, here's draft one, go ahead, you can add in your technology-assisted review. In those instances, since most of the information is public, the concern about privacy, while it's uh, something that the client cares about on their own internal drafts of stuff, it's easier to uh, set the technology up to address that. And 
What I mean by that is in the examples I gave in e-discovery where we're building machine learning models that predict document characteristics, at the end of a case, we destroy the model. Not, not optimal for the legal industry to destroy machine learning models because it slows down innovation. But from a practical standpoint, it's safe and it's the right thing to do as our industry is currently constructed. That leads me to the, to the second issue, which is, or the second type of uh, work we're doing to help clients, which is, which is a lot more sophisticated in terms of uh, trying to run to ground the underlying issue of how do you deal with protective orders? And I'll give you an example. If, we, if you can build a system for expert witnesses that would allow them to do the following, write a first draft of my report in my voice, in the style that I've written my reports, take a look at my academic research and tell me, is there new research or is there contradictory research out there that I'm not aware of? Check my econometric formulas and tell me whether or not the, the models have any holes in them. By the same token, wouldn't it be great if you could do that for opposing experts? Reports that are coming in, see if there are issues that uh, generative AI could help you identify quickly. All sounds great and very powerful stuff, but without knowing it and without being thoughtful, you could violate a protective order in two seconds. And I'm sure there are people who already have violated protective orders because they didn't realize, hey, you know what? I can't really ask ChatGPT this question because it is specific to the case and it's violating a protective order. Yeah. And I know that, you know, you're involved in uh, expert testimony and certainly definitely can see the, the benefits of uh, using AI, and, and I guess certainly as a uh, deposing litigator, the, maybe the first question I should start asking experts is whether they they utilized uh, AI in any of you know the experts' uh, opinions. And so you know the question I guess to me is you know what what is discoverable in that? I mean are, you're going to have to start I guess as an expert start holding on to queries that you made to, to chat GPT and how that kind of influenced uh, your opinions? I mean, what else do you see kind of in, in the realm of uh, expert opinions uh, with uh, AI? Well, I think that a couple of things have to change over time for the technology to be as powerful as it is in other, other industries. And I talk about this in a more broad sense when I discuss innovation in, in the legal industry. And the example I often refer to is if you look at the medical industry and you're teaching doctors how to predict cancer, everybody gets that, hey, wouldn't it be great to get better cancer predictions? And so there's not a resistance to donating things like cancer scans to a large database that an AI model can train on. In our industry, in the legal industry, the presumption is that when a matter is over, particularly a, a uh, adversarial litigation matter that everyone wants the information to go away and nobody ever wants to see it, see the light of day, which makes perfect sense, but it is going to hinder innovation in our industry because it means you have to do things like destroy the model that you used for that case without being able to take the information and feed it to a super model or a super brain, if you will. And I think this is particularly troubling 
at the law firm level, because as litigators, you guys have a way different burden. I can talk to a corporate client and if they have enough repeat litigation and they decide, hey, we want to have the data that's ours go into a large language model and we want you BRG to host it for us so that we get these efficiencies, that's a separate issue. Um, you know, it becomes easier to deal with. But in the instance where I'm talking to you and you, you've just said, I want to ask somebody whether they've used ChatGPT to help them with the expert reports. Well, the answer in the future should include, you know, we, we used a private large language model. We had written it into our agreements with the court that in the protective order, it says we're using AI technology in this case for these things. And at the end of the case, we will either destroy the model or synthesize the data that's in there and make it anonymous so that it doesn't live and violate any protective order. Really interesting stuff. Uh, definitely uh, interesting to, to look into the future on this topic. And uh, so we are coming close to our time together to be ended. And my last question for you, is AI a threat to the law? And I think, you know, a lot of people are, you know, perhaps afraid AI is going to come in and, and take over, you know, lawyers jobs. What do you see kind of, uh, is it a threat or, or positive to the legal industry? I think it's a huge positive. I can't see the legal industry being threatened by AI. Having said that, I think that there's obvious um, efficiencies that will come from AI. And, and we talked about document review being one of them. Uh, but in general, what I tell people when I'm asked this question is that if you understand machine learning, you'll quickly understand why lawyers aren't going anywhere. And the way machine learning works is that you feed it a bunch of examples. And the example I like to use is you can teach a machine the difference between a cat and a dog. And you do that by giving it a lot of pictures of cats and dogs and lions and tigers and zebras. And eventually the machine gets better at saying this is a dog and this is a cat. The problem in legal is, of course, sometimes a dog is a cat and sometimes a cat is a dog. And, you know, the best example I can give you is privileged documents. Two lawyers can look at the same privileged document and one can say it's not privileged. The same document could be privileged in one setting and not in another. And the way you deal with that in machine learning is something called semi-supervised review, which means you pull out small sets of data and you ask subject matter experts to train the machine by saying, ah, this is actually not a cat, it's a dog. This document looks like it's privileged, but it's not. And in so doing, that's how you get to the efficiencies where you can give the kind of predictions and confidence scoring that I was talking about earlier, where you can say to somebody, okay, you know what? We need lawyers to review another 1,500 documents, or we need somebody to go in and check to tell us whether our predictions are right. And in so doing, what, what you'll end up seeing is that in industries like ours, that the subject matter experts, the professionals play a huge role in the success and the accuracy of these models. So in my view, the future of the legal profession is people who are interacting with this stuff and making predictions better because machines can't predict legal outcomes as well as they can predict the uh, probability that somebody has cancer. 
So we're always going to be needed to trust uh, yet verify uh, what AI is going to be doing then. Uh, I think that's a great way of summing it up. And I also think if you don't do that as an attorney in the future, you might be committing malpractice. Again, I'm not one, but <laughs> I do know that uh, the, the rules that govern the responsibility that, that you have uh, ethically to do this are going to require that you, you do get to know the technology well enough to say, yes, I've looked at it, I trust it, and I verified it. All right. Well, uh, we're at uh, the end of our time. Um, if folks wanted to reach out to you to ask questions or to get additional information, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Sure. They can reach out to me on my email, which is richard.finkelman at thinkbrg.com. And Finkelman is spelled E-L-M-A-N for those people who would like to get in touch. Excellent. Well, Richard Finkelman, thank you so much for being on the show today. One last thing before I leave, I mentioned the um, report that we did, and that is also available at our BRG website if people want to find the AI machine learning report that we published earlier this year. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Before our tip segment, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you to Disco for sponsoring Litigation Radio. Disco makes the law work better for everyone with cutting-edge solutions that leverage AI, cloud computing, and data analytics to help legal professionals accelerate e-discovery and document review. Learn more at csdisco.com. And now it's time for a quick tip from the ABA Litigation Section's Mental Health and Wellness Task Force. And I'd like to welcome back Haley Maple to the show. Haley is a shareholder at Katz, Siegel & Maple in Tampa Bay, Florida, where she focuses on representing design professionals, general contractors, subcontractors, and manufacturers in all stages of litigation, and in professional liability matters, commercial litigation, contract disputes, and construction defect litigation. Welcome back to the show, Haley. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I understand you're going to talk about changes we can potentially make in the profession and in our practices to help the mental health of litigators. So what's your quick tip? Thank you. And thanks for this opportunity to talk about this really important topic that's near and dear to my heart. Recently, I participated on a panel presented by the ABA section of litigation called It's Not Just Mindfulness and Yoga. The concept of the panel and what we talked about at the webinar was that so often over the past few years, there's been an increase in teaching attorneys to deal with stressful situations by engaging in regular yoga, learning mindfulness and meditation. And while all of that is wonderful and great, um, it doesn't address the underlying structural problems as to why attorneys are struggling with such high rates of suicide, high rates of addiction, high rates of just really challenging issues from depression to anxiety. While yoga and meditation are both really important, and I frankly engage in yoga every day, both do a good job of helping reduce stress and anxiety, but neither address the underlying cause of what leads to some of the disturbing statistics surrounding attorneys. Um, there are multiple resources out there a great one is uh, to look at the Massachusetts SJC's Standing Committee on Attorney Wellbeing. That entity recently released studies that showed the numbers of attorneys who have contemplated suicide, who have attempted suicide, as well as those who have actually uh, committed suicide and who struggle with alcohol dependency and alcoholism, which are two different things, 
and various mental health issues. The concept that has been bothering me and others for a long time is we really need to be looking at what structurally in the profession is leading to these outcomes for attorneys at a much higher rate than other professions. For me, I am a shareholder at a smaller firm, and the tips I am going to share for creating structural change within a firm environment that can help support the well-being of attorneys within that environment, while applicable to small firms, have equal application to large firms in many regards. In first place, it really all starts with hiring. For me, I am not going to hire someone who is mean, who is a yeller, who is unreasonable in terms of deadlines and false deadlines and abusive towards staff and associates. We've all seen that type of personality in law, and I have no place for it in my firm. So when I interview folks, I make sure that I know that I'm hiring someone who is genuinely a good person and isn't going to scream. I make sure to know my team, and I can do that really well in a small firm. And I imagine in a large firm, you really know your team within the practice areas, especially. And if I can see that someone is struggling, I make sure to ask them if they are okay and mean it and set aside the time in case that person needs to talk about anything, respectfully, of course, and respecting their boundaries, but letting them know that I'm available to them to mentor them through difficult situations or just be a listening ear. As an owner, it's important to me personally to be vulnerable in front of my team. I want them to know that I am a human and that I am stressed out And it's okay to try and to fail. I think it's important for me to talk about my feelings, how I'm dealing with difficult situations, to model appropriate behavior, to model that when you're stressed out, that doesn't mean yelling or taking it out on other people you work with. I also try very hard to acknowledge when someone needs time off or where someone needs help. If someone is having a personal issue, whether that be with their dog or part of our families or something with their family or something completely unrelated. They're having to have their house tinted for termites. We try to work around that and step in and help them if they have a deadline that day. Luckily, I work in a pretty collegial bar. The construction bar in Florida is is pretty collegial with each other. We know each other well. But I think it's very important also to demonstrate to outside law firms that you're willing to be professional, give extensions, and engage what I like to call collaborative litigation. In the end, recognizing that you can share certain documents, that certain things are inevitable, and in working together to get to some of those things we can agree upon, you can still represent your client in an assertive fashion that ultimately saves your client money while decreasing the stress of all involved. I really, really firmly believe that there are big structural changes that are needed in the profession itself in order to fully eliminate or decrease or address the issues with dependency and suicide and mental health. But by taking these small actions within our own firms, we are starting the process of making changes that hopefully starts spreading like wildfire throughout the profession. Well, thanks, Haley. Thanks for those tips. And thanks for being such a good example in the profession. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
And that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can contact me at dscriven-young at pecklaw.com and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting you in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Women in Litigation Joint CLE Conference in San Diego, taking place November 1st through the 3rd. Join us as we highlight women leading for success in the courtroom, in the judiciary, and in the profession. Programming will focus on trial skills, insurance litigation, products liability litigation, and securities litigation. Connect with leading litigators, judges, and in-house counsel from around the country. To find out more and for registration information, please go to ambar.org slash litigateher. That's litigate H-E-R. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make the show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thanks, Rich, for all of your hard work. And thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.